0: Continuing to think today on the theme of messages we've been looking at after death, what? We've been considering the hope of heaven, some of the things that Scripture holds out to us on that score. A little less time today to look at it on a Communion Sunday than others. But I want to look at an important theme of heaven as seen as our rest, the rest that we have in God. And I'm going to put together three short texts, and I hope you see a theme there. Uh, Not so much that we're going to dissect all the words of it, but Hebrews chapter 4 raises before Christian people the prospect of entering God's rest, a very important uh, theme that the Old Testament had begun to speak about but had not been completely realized. I'm just going to read this short portion of Hebrews 4. Verses 8 to 11, the word says, If Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken later about another day. There remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For anyone who enters God's rest rests from his own work, just as God did from his. Let us, therefore, make every effort to enter that rest, so no one will fall by following their example of disobedience. Another related short word from the book of Revelation, chapter 14, words we often say, these words, when a death occurs in our midst. The apostle John, given a great vision of things in heaven, he writes in this one verse, Revelation fourteen thirteen. Then I heard a voice from heaven say to me, Write, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, they will rest from their labor, for their deeds will follow them. And a slightly different picture in Revelation 19, verse beginning at verse 6 of what I understand to be the culmination of that entry into heaven. Revelation 19, beginning at 6 Then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters and like loud peals of thunder, shouting hallelujah, for our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory, for the wedding of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear, fine linen, stands for the righteous acts of the saints. Then the angel said to me, write, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And he added, these are the true words of God. From these passages and others, the Bible has a strong association of the concept of rest, a very simple sounding four-letter word with a total experience of eternal life in heaven for every believer in Christ. Heaven is truly the believer's rest, construed in many ways. On May 10th in the year 1863, at a farmhouse belonging to the Chandler family south of Fredericksburg, Virginia, a great Man of this country lay dying. Many would say one of the greatest military leaders this country ever produced was dying of wounds he received at the Battle of Chancellorsville. General Thomas Jonathan Jackson lapsed in and out of consciousness in the last few hours as infections attacked his body following an amputation. His wife Mary was with her. They were both devout Servants of Jesus Christ. And Mary knew her husband was dying, and she spoke to him and, and asked if he accepted the will of God that this looked to be the end of his life. And the redoubtable General Stonewall Jackson, the Christian man, answered his wife, Yes, I prefer that. It will be my infinite gain to be translated to glory. And then Mary, his wife, and other witnesses recorded his final words that he spoke as he rallied and spoke this one sentence. You're not sure what was in his mind exactly, but Stonewall Jackson, the general, said, Let us cross over the river and rest beneath the shade of the trees. I have no doubt he was summoning up some subconscious command or or suggestion at least that he had made to his fellow officers after a battle. But coming as those words did at the end of a life that honored Christ, he very beautifully signified his own immediate prospect of rest and joy with the Lord in heaven. I want you to try to think about all the things this word rest means. The end of a rough day, You've had pressures from every side at work, from difficult people, maybe financial difficulties of some kind. You're tired all the way through. Maybe you've been riding the snowblower for four or five hours. And you finally come to that time when you can lay your head on the pillow. And just before you close your eyes, you think, oh, just to rest, just to sleep. Maybe you can remember how it felt when your 10-year-old legs ran all the way home from the school bus the last day of school after fourth grade was over. And you, I actually can remember this. One particular day, I think it was around fourth grade, going home and thinking, it's summer. Endless days to play. They seemed endless when you're 10 years old, don't they? Endless time to do whatever I want to do. What wonderful joy. Rest. I actually liked school, but I sure liked vacation. Endless time just to rest and enjoy it. I think we all have an innate desire for the release from any kind of strain or toil or suffering or physical illness or relationship difficulties, physical exhaustion. However you construe it, we desire to rest. Body and soul, we want to rest. Did you ever think about the fact as some have suggested that that is really a spiritual desire and that it signifies our longing to recapture and re-enter Eden, the place from which we were shut out by our sins so long ago? David once cried out in the midst of difficulties when he was being chased about and made a fugitive. Psalm 55 has his words, a prayer. He said, oh, that I had the wings of a dove that I might fly away and find rest. There's a memory verse you can claim sometimes in the midst of a troubled day. The rest that David sought that we seek is a spiritual respite, and it's something that calls out from the deepest part of us, deep in our souls. It's not something that can be satisfied. You see, people are always trying to satisfy it by things that don't satisfy. They think that cry for rest and escape will be satisfied by alcohol or pills or sexual indulgence or taking enough vacations or traveling to see new places or having new adventures. But they come back. They turn around, they look at themselves and say, I'm not rested. I didn't find what I was after. And they didn't find it because the reprieve they were looking for in the core of their beings is going to be satisfied only by a restored relationship with our God from whom we have been alienated by our sin. And that relationship we know comes about as we become one with God in Christ at the cross and by His resurrection. And it is a relationship that can be called rest because in the new heaven and the new earth, in our glorified bodies, the Christian is going to find the satisfaction and the peace that he seeks now or that she longs for this day today. Well, first of all, today with a shortened time to look at this, I want to ask you to think about biblical rest as a term loaded with hope. This is a term that the Bible develops thematically from its beginning and brings to a climax near the end of the Scripture. Genesis 2 has the foundation for the subject as we read about God resting from his creation labor. Now, God is not a man who needs a labor union to regulate his week and say, don't work more than 40 hours, it's not good for you. But The Scripture reveals this as a symbol and a lesson and a paradigm, as a pattern for human behavior and the blessing of God on human behavior throughout history, that after six days of hard work, living things and human souls would rest. They would withdraw from the toil of having to earn a living and refresh themselves spiritually in worship of the Lord and even physically in taking time apart. Now, we could, of course, go into that subject in great detail. And What we see today in the tension and the drivenness of our society is largely fueled by the fact that the very concept of a Sabbath has disappeared, and people have no opportunity in a week to find out that man does not live by bread alone, but that he lives also by every word that proceeds from the mouth of our God. Well, the concept goes forward into the the time of Israel and her exodus, and the word rest became important once more as the, as the Israelites went out from Egyptian slavery, and Moses was leading them to a promised land, and one of the great characteristics of that promised land is the Scriptures called it your resting place. Just think, if you were a slave and you, you were given incredible labor demands seven days a week, we talk about None of us knows what the life of a slave is like. And the Israelites are being taken out of that condition and we're being told, I'm going, I'm taking you to a land that will be your resting place. Deuteronomy 12 speaks of it that way. But instead of finding that, of course, we know Israel doubted God, rebelled against Moses, did every way they could to resist what God was doing And so they were consigned to 40 years of restless, no rest, wandering. And then even when they entered the land, they disobeyed and and didn't follow God's commands. And the land itself was not fully the place of blessing because there is no complete rest for spiritual rebels. Well, later on, as the kingdom had been built up many centuries later, David and Solomon were kings over Israel in the height of of God's blessing. And some of that promise of rest was visibly seen politically and economically. The borders of the land were secure. The the economy was thriving. And it could be said that under David and especially later under Solomon that Israel rested from her enemies. They didn't dare attack anymore this secure and strong country. Well, of course, it didn't stay that way And Solomon's sons and others turned the land that God had called a place of rest into a place of unbelief and fighting and all kinds of difficulties until the spiritual degradation of it brought a promise out of Psalm 95 in which in the the words of God himself he said of those who would doubt him and who would not trust him, they will never enter into my rest And so you see, by that time, it it was a symbol of everything that it meant to belong to God and be at peace with Him, to know His rest. Therefore, it's no accident in the choice of words that Jesus took in a famous statement of invitation in Matthew 11. Jesus, I fully believe, knew that whole history of the Word, that entire concept of entering into God's rest when He said, to those who would be his disciples come to me you who are weary and burdened down and i will give you rest there was no idle invitation in fact the word burden that he used there in the greek is a word that some would say uh, speaks about a ship's cargo the unloading of an entire load of freight from a ship jesus said come and let that kind of a burden be unloaded on me. I will give you the rest you seek. He was promising us that same oneness with God, peace with God, delight in God, security in God, refuge in God that the Old Testament had been building up to all the way through, but people had not entered into. And therefore, we have a chapter like Hebrews 4 following that up. This is a very fast sketch of this concept across scripture but hebrews 4 tells us that joshua though the conqueror who took them after moses into the promised land into the place that was supposed to be the resting place didn't lead them to rest says hebrews 4 they didn't get it under joshua and so we're told here now the prospect of entering this is still held out to the true people of god all people who will come the way that Christ invited them to come. Come by Christ. Come by trust in him, him who died to pay your your ransom penalty and to buy you out of sin and to give you new life, resurrection life like his own. And so there's a sense in which Hebrews says, there yet remains a day of Sabbath rest, a great consummation of this whole thing. And it's looking forward to our heavenly experience of the full blessing of all that it means to be at rest in our God. Does this have some sense in which you can taste what this is talking about as a Christian? I hope so. I hope you can say, well, I live in the same strife-torn world. I have a difficult job where people are upset with me, and and I'm under deadlines and pressures, and I, I don't feel restful a lot of the time. You might say that, but you say, but wait, I can say. I'm at peace with God. My sin problem, my sin burden has been unloaded unto Jesus Christ. And there's a certainty about how I stand in relation to eternal things. I'm forgiven. I'm God's child. I already know in this life the peace that passes all understanding. I am not a captive. I am not a slave to the worrisome, angry spiral that I see in people all around me. You see it in road rage. You see it in in so many ways today. People are angry. People are tense. People are on a hair trigger. They're not at rest, and they're ready to strike out all the time. Have you begun to taste what it means to have God's Sabbath rest because you know Jesus Christ? That's who this table is for today, those who already rest in Him. Now, quickly, in the second place, I want to speak about filling this in a little bit. And, oh, I could, I could do so much more than I have time for. But I just want to give you some practical images or suggestions of what heaven's rest really bodes for us. I read that verse in Revelation 14, 13 that says, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on, because they do rest from their labor. They're not asleep. They're not unconscious. They're alive in the presence of Christ, but they rest from all the strife, and they are bound to Christ by a basic peace belonging to Him. I want to fill in just a few of the many things that this can mean to us, and I was helped a lot by a a great older book that's around. You could obtain this if you were interested. It's a fairly sizable book. Richard Baxter was a Puritan who wrote many volumes, and one of his great books is a book about heaven. It's called The Saint's Everlasting Rest. And reading parts of it, I didn't read the whole book, but Baxter has prodded some of my thoughts in what I'm going to say here today. As he talked about a life of satisfaction and enjoyment and meaningful engagement with God in Christ in eternity, and talked about the fact that there are no waves of unrest that can toss us around there any longer. For example, we won't struggle against sin anymore. Isn't that a great thing? There'll be no sin. Satan will have been done away with. We'll be out of his reach and influence. Our flesh will not be liable to temptation anymore. You know how it is today, We see some good thing, some beautiful thing that God might might have made for pleasure and given a good role in this material creation, and we turn it into a bait for our lusts. But that won't be anymore. It won't be like what Paul had to say in Romans 7, the good I want to do, I don't do, and what I hate is what I do. That's a Christian struggle, isn't it? We can all identify. But at last, a vulnerability to sinful weakness and temptation, and the power of our enemy will be no more. And then, too, our mental understanding will not be vexed with unresolved questions anymore. There are so many people who build their, their unresolved questions into serious doubts today. You know we won't talk about unanswered prayer anymore in eternity. I believe that we will understand the providence of God, the deep mysteries, the things that that we just don't see why these things happen today in our personal lives or internationally in great disasters and so on. We will give that over to our God and say, now I can see enough of my God to trust him and not challenge him on all these things. I believe the weakest Christian in eternity will comprehend more theology More of the providence of God than does the most spiritually minded scholar of the Bible in this world today. Our ignorance is going to give way to light, to satisfaction. Baxter wrote, we will look upon God's face. Here's a quote from him. He said, God's face will be our scripture on which we will read all truth. We won't have to study it anymore. We will look at our Lord, and in the knowledge of him, we will understand, and we will be full not of rebel questions or shaken fists at God, but of gratitude and of praise for his grace. And then think, too, what it will be like when pride is extinct. Oh, the root of pride is such a destructive thing in human life. What will it be like when we can actually fully, authentically see ourselves all before the Lord as equals under grace? There won't be anyone who can say, I'm more worthy of God than you are. There won't be any rivalry. There won't be any competition. There won't be misunderstandings. There won't be rudeness. We will see ourselves as one under grace and rejoice in it. And then, too, we'll rest from suffering. Think of that. What fragile vessels these bodies of ours are. We suffer mentally. We suffer emotionally. We suffer physically. The hymn writer called us frail children of dust, and he knew what he was talking about. Just imagine. The resurrection body is so far beyond anything we can get a hold of because it will be free of disease and headaches and sore muscles and injuries, and disabilities, free of death. Death will be over with. And heaven, as we've said before, has no cemeteries, no hospitals, no oncology labs. Praise God. And we'll rest from persecution. Think of that. There'll be no one in the eternal kingdom of God who will mock or sneer at Christians as the loved ones of God. They won't be there. There'll be no one there to create persecution. And think also of what it would mean to have a rest from all the divisions and the family arguments and the misunderstandings that divide Christians from one another on the earth today. I have a great truth to tell you, folks. In heaven, there are no Presbyterians but there also are no Baptists and no Methodists and no Episcopalians and no Lutherans. All of these things that have divided us over the ages, these secondary considerations where we maybe don't understand or we think some other Christian is authentically wrong in the way they see the Scriptures, they're all going to go and we'll be one people, one people of God in Christ of every language, and tongue, and tribe, and skin color, rejoicing before our God. You know, today, every serious Christian ought to be burdened for evangelism, of people he knows. And there's a sense in which we have unrest even in this area, the area of the fact that there are people we know and love and care about who don't know Christ. And we pray for them, and we try to witness to them and influence them, and we're not restful, not knowing that they are not. In Christ. But do you realize that there will be a time when evangelism will be done? And when anxiety for other souls will be done? For eternal destinies will have been resolved and decided? Some suggest when we look at Revelation 14 13, and it says that the, those who have died in Christ, their works follow them, that one of the meanings of that, at least, and maybe one of the stronger meanings, is our influence, the work we have done to influence others for the kingdom of God, to pray for them, to witness to them, to maybe just model for them what it means to belong to Christ. And is it not possible that many of us are going to actually be quite surprised in that kingdom to find out what those works of influence and prayer and witness have brought about as others are there as a result and a fruit of our efforts well, we could try to take this in all morning long and we wouldn't succeed. Who of us could say that of any one single day in the year that you, you know that you had a day that was a day of complete, absolute rest in every way, physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually, a day of just total delight and rest? I, I don't think most of us would claim that because we can't even imagine it. And so how can we imagine day upon day and eternity unendingly entirely at rest? Richard Baxter wrote of it with ecstasy, and he said, Oh, happy day when I think of the rest of the saints in glory. He said, There there will be but one God, one Christ, one Spirit, and we will enjoy one pledge of justifying grace in the blood of Jesus, we will fill one church and have one enjoyment forever and ever. I tack on to this today, and it may seem unrelated, but I think it is not, a concluding idea. And that's why I read from Revelation 19 for you. I believe that one of the other pictures the Bible gives us of that rest, of belonging to Christ of being one in Christ, of being at peace in Christ is the image of what the Bible calls the marriage supper of the Lamb. The Bible's a show-and-tell book. It knows that we, we can't do everything on the intellectual plane. We need things we can visualize. So it gives us this picture when we as believers in Christ sit at the Lord's table and have these emblems of a great feast of belonging to the Lord. It's a pledge of a feast that is coming. You say, in and of itself, these, these little bits of food and drink aren't very much, but they are pledges of what is coming, of the great feast in which the Lord will welcome His own people into His presence. Isaiah 35.10 has a marvelous picture of that, I think, when it says, the ransomed of the Lord will then return. They will enter Zion with singing. And everlasting joy will crown their heads. Gladness and joy will overtake them. Sorrow and sighing will flee away. There are many good books on the subject of heaven. Richard Baxter wrote one hundreds of years ago, one written in recent time. Some of you have asked me what I think of this book. I think a lot of it is a book simply called Heaven by Randy Alcorn. Very fine book if you're interested in looking that up. And Randy Alcorn exhorts us in a way that I would give to you when he says this. We need to stop acting as if heaven were a myth or an impossible dream or some endlessly dull religious meeting. Heaven is no distraction from real life, said Alcorn. It is the realm we were made for. So let us embrace it with contagious joy and anticipation. I've never been to heaven, nor have you. But I anticipate it. I actually long for it because it's part of my spiritual DNA. And until I am there, I will not know that I'm finally home. And even today, I live differently because I live this life and realizing every day is just a dim copy of the great rest God is going to give me in Christ one day. And that weighty prospect of being at home with him keeps me moving forward. My home keeps me moving forward where at last I'll be at rest in my great Savior. I pray you will have this hope lively and fresh and burning within you. And our Father As we are at this table now, as we approach it in faith, as we come confessing sin and looking to you, we would just think of the tremendous inaugural banquet that will greet us when we finally come into our rest, how we thank you for Jesus. and May the peace that he brings beyond understanding come to us even now as we know he is with us and will be until that final and wonderful day. In His name we ask. Amen.